General Turgeson, is there really a chance for that plane to get through? Mr. President, if I may speak freely. The Rusky talks big, but frankly, we think he's short of know-how. I mean, you just can't expect a bunch of ignorant peons to understand a machine like some of our boys. And that's not meant as an insult, Mr. Ambassador. I mean, you, you take your average Rusky, we all know how much guts he's got. Hell, look at, look at all of them, them Nazis killed off and they still wouldn't quit. Can't you stick to the point, General? Well, uh, sir, uh, if the pilot's good, see, I mean, I mean, if he's really sharp, he can barrel that baby in solo. I mean, <laughs> you ought to see it sometime. It's a sight, you know, a big plane like a 52. Vroom! This jet exhaust frying chickens in the barnyard. <laughs> yeah, but has he got a chance? Has he got a chance? <laughs> Hell, you, you, I want to say thank you to everybody in these past months and years. Might be the one time I'm speechless. Welcome to the Great Oscar Redux, the podcast where we look back at a specific years and ask, did the Academy get it right? Each month, we'll take a look at a host of, of movies from a particular year. We'll tackle the year's best picture winner and the perceived runner-up. We'll debate the validity for the top prize. Through reflecting on the film's cultural impact and our own critiques, history very well may be rewritten and a new best picture may be named. Of course, this is all in good fun. And we ask you to join in the conversation as we revisit the year 1964. I'm your co-host, Doran Teleporos. I'm your other co-host, Stephen Farrell. Uh, and for this episode, we're going to look back at the Best Picture winner for that year, My Fair Lady, and the perceived runner-up, Dr. Strangelove. Um, now, Doran, did you know that My Fair Lady came in with a whopping 12 nominations? Uh, ultimately, it won eight awards. I think the most notable ones was Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Actor. And Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, got four nominations, but zero wins. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not surprised that My Fair Lady got so much praise, but the fact that Dr. Strangelove, like, just got nothing and, and even these four nominations which i hope we get into like like that's not nearly enough i'm not saying other categories it wasn't even considered for it should win but i'm like this is this received should have received way more merit so um with that why don't we get right into it right steven let's uh let's go ahead and set the scene in a world in a time an ex-con a reluctant soldier Somewhere in the middle of nowhere, it was a top-secret government project. The towers lost control. There's panic in the air. That was their first mistake. There is a cause worth fighting for.
Welcome back, everybody, and, and know your ears. Don't deceive you. We uh, we have new music starting this episode. Um, you know, the show went on a little bit of a hiatus, and, and in that time, it took some time to find some new music that might go well with the theme of the, the sound and um, did some digging on a site called Free Music Archive, which I highly recommend to anybody. It's it's the best way to get, I mean, none of us, I, I don't know what Steven, but I'm not an artist. <laughs> So basically what you just heard and what you'll hear in another segment um, is me finding some really, really cool music that somebody's willing to let us alter and then me going around the web and finding cool clips. Um, this particular one was fun because I had to go and look for, yeah, classic Don LaFontaine, just splice some really good clips I thought that would really get us psyched. Um, and with that, let's just get right into it. Uh, <laughs> What? I'm excited. I was just, that was a lot of content. Yeah. <laughs> remember you. Probably more, Finding royalty-free music. <laughs> probably more about that intro than we're then actually going to go actually gonna talk about the Oscars. Yeah, sure, there we go. That's fine. That's okay. <laughs> that's okay. That's what the people really want to know. They want to know how we make the show, not what the show is. So yeah. uh, go ahead. So Stephen, tell us, tell us, man, what um, 1964, give me, so, give me the top five films of the year. 1964, uh, the highest grossing films. Um, we're going to start off with uh, what, which I found extremely interesting is that we had two films from the same series. Uh, but number five is from Russia with Love with $9.2 million. Um, then four is Carpetbaggers with 15.5. Goldfinger, the other James Bond film, 22.5. My Fair Lady, 30 million, and then Mary Poppins, 31. Um, I think it's pretty crazy to think about how hard the, the movie musical has fallen um, mm -hmm. to where this film, there were the two top grossing films were, were musicals where, you know, not to say that like they can't be successful. Chicago was successful. Les Mis was successful. But then you have like a lot of bombs. You have your cats you have your um producers at least the film version um where they just don't necessarily connect uh mm -hmm. and even when they do connect i don't think they're making star wars money they're not making avengers money yeah yeah no that's that's true um and you know it, it's funny and and this is a time of you know musicals are all over the place this is like i think you know you get kind of uh a big period of like the forties in film. And then again, now in the sixties and that's pretty much it. And, and so much in fact that like, you know, we'll discuss later, but they even kind of made up categories because they didn't know how to handle like all the, uh, the, the musicals that were coming out. They had to kind of be like, let's isolate this a little bit and we'll kind of get yeah. into that. Um, but yeah, yeah. One, adapted musical and one original musical and um what are your thoughts on on the churning out of james bond especially now that it takes you know five years to yeah. get another one in the series i mean the reason that this is on this list is because that russia would love premiered the year before but it's still made in the second year you know enough to be on the top uh top five there mm -hmm. um but the fact that we had i don't know that's insane. I mean, I know we have, what is it? Like Endgame and, you know, uh, uh, Infinity War back to back years, right? 
but they yeah but they're all where, like, filmed at the same yeah, time yeah you know? like all at once and like yeah. the fact that like you know i don't know how they put together like those two movies so so fast um you know and like i was kind of like looking and it just kind of randomly came up too with like disney how like disney was on a clip of like one animated movie a year one right one um live action-ish movie a year and like that seems quaint now yeah so um well and i'll also say that like i i feel like you've always come to expect it from like um i mean they don't really exist anymore but like low budget studio comedies where you'd have like wayne's world was surprisingly a hit so they they just try to ride that train as much as possible and i feel like Wayne's World 2 came out relatively quickly after that one or like a um I, one that really sticks back in my my childhood was Problem Child um that old uh like John Ritter movie uh I think the sequel came out like within six months of the first yeah. one like yeah. it was just insane but I feel like that also makes sense because it's just like uh, there are these little nothing comedies but a James Bond movie I feel like there's so much that goes to putting them probably back even back in the 60s but no, it's, it's, it's incredible. I'm trying to think like, you know, I, I wish I had had time even to prepare for this show, but like, like, when does that happen? Like, it mm-hmm. does that happen. Um, and like, and another thing we'll probably see like one of these years is like, like a film just continuing like Star Wars or whatever, like for like multiple years being in the top 10, just keep, keep going. But like, yeah. to have like a series like that, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's, it's interesting. Um, uh, we did have a, a big uh, disappointment from that year. Um, what was that one? So that actually, do you want to take this? Because I have no idea what this movie is. I have uh, no idea what it is. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we listed a movie here. and We don't know anything about it. Uh, let's see. Follow the Roman Empire. We're not going to watch the bad ones. Like, I don't know. <laughs> Speak for yourself, man. I love bad movies. Uh, follow the Roman Empire. Well, the big thing that we came across is that it had a budget of over um, $18 million and it made uh, just a shy, or like a shade under um, $5 million. Yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty bad for, for 60, what is it, 64, 65. Uh, let's see, follow the Roman Empire. Uh, Anthony Mann, let's see who we got. We got Alec Guinness, Sophia Loren, oh, Christopher Sophia Plummer, Loren. Omar Sharif. Um, that's a lot of names. Yeah, I, I would, I kind of want to check this movie out. Like, I mean, this is, this is one of those, like, you know, um, ensemble cast kind of things. Um, let's see. <laughs> uh, let's see. Bosley, here we go. Bosley Crowther of the New York Times sharply criticized the film writing. So massive and incoherent. It is so loaded with technicolor spectacles, tableaus, and military melee, uh, malaise that they have real, real meaning or emotional pull. And you're likely to have the feeling after sitting through it, it's more than three hours, not counting the time and information. Yeah, so the runtime of this movie, this might also be the reason, 188 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that's tough. I mean, people I, watch, yeah. Well, just as I was describing, it made me think of Cats. Um, just with the the huge cast and the, the colors and... <laughs> I mean, I'm going to assume the fall of the Roman Empire is not like cats, but I don't know. I feel like that's a fair comparison. Yeah, not like the that big of a bomb, but that's a pretty big bomb. So, um, right. well, so Mary Poppins and um, 
uh, My Fair Lady were in the top five. How did the other Oscar nominated films uh, fare out? So the three other Oscars, you know, the all all of our top um, our five nominees cracked the top twenty, which is which is good and right, something that again at this time there's probably we'll probably do some research on this and see when we kind of go away from this, but we're seeing like a correlation between popular and critical success um, being the same. So, you know, Mary Poppins, My Fair Lady, one and two. Then we have Dr. Strangelove and Beckett at 15 and 16, roughly the same 9.1-ish million dollars, give or take a couple hundred thousand. Mm -hmm. And then we have Zorba the Greek at 19 at 9 million itself. So um, not a bad showing. If you're all in the top, top 20, then I think that's pretty good. But um, I will say, like, I mean, I think with the the invention of the summer block, blockbuster in the like late 70s, that filmmaking, like, not only was a part of pop culture, but like it, it went into a different direction, mm-hmm. you know, like where you make movies now that, that the hope is for it to make money, not necessarily find any kind of. And I just don't necessarily know if that was the point in the 60s. Like, I think they wanted them to be successful. Like, I don't think they wanted to. And we'll, and we'll talk a little bit about that with My Fair Lady, because I feel like that was a very calculated film um, to to be, you know, probably critically adorned, but also a successful, like, financial movie. But I don't know. I, I feel like back then I could see them lining up a little bit more because, um I, I just don't think they they didn't realize that they could create schlock eh, well actually maybe schlock B movies have been around forever so i don't know maybe i'm i am not actually speaking in any real coherency at this point no i think i think you're honestly i think it'd be good and interesting to see um you know um what when this kind of goes around but probably yeah probably the the, the 70s like you know the jaws that kind of thing um yeah be yeah. interesting uh why don't uh, we talk yeah go ahead let's talk oh, about I was the gonna say, well i or, did you have any relationship with beckett or zorba the zorba zorba, the zorba. i knew that zorba I, I, oh i spelled it wrong in the notes by the way guys that's why that's not steven's fault it's my fault <laughs> zorba the geek zorba, zorba the geek. yeah there we go um no i mean i had heard of these movies and you know it had interest in seeing them and you know, I never really identify with my Greek heritage, but everyone says that if you're a Greek person, Zorba the Greek is something you have to have to watch. And I, I agree. I'd love to watch. I'd love to read the film. I mean, the, mm. read the film, read the book. Um, that it's just one of those kind of like, how do I say it? Change your life kind of films, your outlook on on things. Um, oh. and, it, and I was pleasantly surprised how, how, you know, and it's a long movie, but um it's a fat it's a really fascinating Beckett too Beckett was just like you know maybe less so than Zorba the Greek but you know Peter O'Toole man like he's really one of those dudes like he could just like read the phone book and it, I would watch it it's interesting like he finds some way to make it interesting um and so the only ones kind of coming into this were obviously Mary Poppins Dr. Strangelove and, and um My Fair Lady what's so your Beck- relationship with Mary Poppins um I think, you know, probably late too as well. I always like to tell, and, and you know, my my parents would always deny this, but Disney was never something big in our our household or not like I would say discouraged, but not something, you know, we just went crazy over. 
So I'm trying to think when I first really saw Mary Poppins, but you know, obviously my wife is one of my wife's favorite films and it's, and it's fun. And I hope, you know, someday like my son will really get into it and he likes the songs, but um, I'd love for him to, to, to see it like all the way through at some point, but um, mm-hmm. I, there, there's a good chance that, and again, I've said this a lot, but we may redo some of these episodes with different films. And that's one Mary Poppins where I wonder, you know, did, did we get it right in picking their perceived runner up? But, um, <laughs> and Dr. Strangelove, like I think the first couple times around seeing it in college and being one of those like, yeah, man, this movie's on another level. Um, still, as we'll see, really, really enjoy it. Knocked it down a little bit, but um, mm-hmm. yeah. And then My Fair Lady having the opposite kind of feeling where I thought this was really great and a masterpiece. And then, you know, not to spoil too much because we're going to get into it, having kind of a lesser opinion um, as well. What about you? Um, well, with Mary Poppins, this is, I, I, I mean, since your family kind of um, shunned Walt Disney, uh, something that was always big for me growing up was the, um, uh, the movies coming out of the vault. Uh, I always felt like, do you, you remember this where they're like, we're opening the Disney vault and the, and the film will be available for only so long on, <laughs> on VHS. Um, and, and Mary Poppins was one of them. It, it yeah. like, yeah. I remember being very excited about the the possibility of owning it and being able to watch it. I think because my parents had some kind of like connection to it. And um, I just, cause I also was really big into the Dick Van Dyke show because uh, of Nick at Night. And I remember watching the Dick Van Dyke show before seeing Mary Poppins. And just being kind of blown away at like the differences between um, his persona in in on television, and then uh, really the the grace and the the talent that was on display with him singing and dancing mm. in this. Um, and so, yeah, like, oh man, the vault. Like the other ones that were really big for me was Sword in the Stone. That one I got. I had, yeah, I had a good, I think, with Child of the Sword and the Stone too. But like, I think you like this weird period in Disney, which is like the dark period. Like, (laughs) like, are you like, I I think I made fun of you for this, like Fox and the Hound and like. I do like Fox and the Hound. Yeah. God, man. Um, No, but like when those movies came out, it it just, I, I do remember the commercial where it would like show the cartridge and then it would close the vault and the, <laughs> the thing would spin and it would be like Mickey's well, silhouette in the middle. And I was just like, mom, dad, we gotta go by, we gotta go by Fox and the Hound right now. Um, <laughs> because otherwise we're gonna lose them and we'll never get them back again until one of those 30 years from now and they'll be available whenever we want to see them streaming. Uh, the Streaming, yeah, like that's gonna, yeah. the. Um, there's one of those commercials that basically like makes it seem like the the fa- like the father is like it's like a dad and his his daughter's like an infant an absolute infant and he's like gotta get gotta get Peter Pan gotta <laughs> gotta like sh- we gotta invest in this now like like they're hoarding it like 
you know, there's going to be a nuclear fallout. We better. better Well, I don't, I don't think I've told you this ever since, um, because we're, we're an Apple family, which Mm -hmm. I I feel like you guys have an Apple TV. Um, The, uh, ever since Disney plus has, has come about Marvel movies and classic Disney movies have actually been coming on sale on Apple TV. And I, maybe it's this idea of the vault, but, and I haven't been doing this with Marvel because Marvel, I'm, I'm whatever, I enjoy it. And I mm-hmm. watch it for like the, the conversation, but I don't really ever go back to them terribly often. Um, but I, I have a feeling that Disney Plus at some point will begin to vault things <laughs> where they'll be like, the Little Mermaid won't be available for much longer on Disney Plus. It'll come back again at some point, but we don't know when. Um, and so that everything won't be at our fingertips. And so every like every three months, they just basically take the Disney catalog and suddenly movies, because Disney, at least on Apple TV, were never on sale. Mm-hmm. Um, I did buy when Margot was born. Um the Lion King, because Mary and I were just talking about it, and you watch so much, so many movies when you have an infant that I just, I just splurged in my like weariness of a new father and just spent twenty dollars on the Lion King. But uh, ever since this, I see Little Mermaid for ten dollars, or I see <laughs> um, Aladdin for ten dollars. I'm like, I gotta just buy it. I just, I need to, because who knows? They may take it away. Um, but I do also then like that I'm slowly getting this little collection of kid movies that, you know, I don't ever foresee us like losing Disney plus because it's now like oxygen, you just breathe it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so we now own a good chunk of them because they're on sale. Well, there we go. Let's, uh, let's jump into the actual ceremony. Um, so, uh, a couple of things that are notable is that this was actually Bob Hope's uh, 12th time um, hosting. Uh, I, I will say that I, in, in rewatching um, clips from the Oscars website, Wikipedia says it's his 14th, but in the actual um, ceremony, they mentioned it was the 12th. Uh, but some really funny lines that I thought kind of stuck out is he uh, said, this is the night where wars and politics are forgotten and we find out who we really hate, um, which I thought was a good turn of phrase. And then he said, Peter Sellers, who played three roles in Dr. Strangelove, was nominated for best show off. Uh, so you really got to love those uh, setups and punch lines that Bob Hope was, was given away. Uh, what else happened that night? Um, so this was, and again, it, you kind of hear it in his monologue, but this was the first year that all four major acting categories went to non-Americans. Um, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out in some, one of these episodes, I'll get back to you guys and see how many times it's actually happened, but this was the very first. And it seemed like that was like a big kind of theme of the Oscars in general. Um, my, my personal favorite kind of moment, um, which I don't know if you checked out Stephen was, was Jimmy Durante, like reading off the, uh, <laughs> Even if that was on the tip of my tongue, I couldn't have said it. <laughs> what? Um, Jimmy Durante? Yeah, and then he like... Uh, and then the guy... That's pretty much it. I guess we don't even need the text. But he like, it's then the guy like Guggenheim, this guy Guggenheim wins and he's like... 
get the schnoz on him. <laughs> you and I can never travel together. <laughs> Congratulations. I thought it was pretty funny. Like he just struck, he just gave up, I feel like halfway through. Um, oh, what, about you, what, else, what else what else stood out for you? Uh, well, this was also the first time of the introduction of best makeup, which um, is funny to think that, that that took, you know, how long to, to get it there to begin with. Yeah, 37th, yeah, I think Academy Awards, that, that's a long time. And um, so you, you wrote in here about uh, Rex Harrison and his acceptance speech. I don't know. Did you... Did you did you enjoy that? Did you think that was a good acceptance speech, or what were your thoughts on that? I thought it um, well. So Rex Harrison, uh, who accepted the award from Audrey Hepburn, who introduced him, uh, thanked him, or sorry, thanked his two fair ladies um, in a way like connecting Hepburn and Julie Andrews. Um, and for anyone who doesn't know. Julie Andrews was the original Broadway star of My Fair Lady and uh, was most likely up for um, the role in the film, but they wanted a, a more famous actress. And uh, so they went with Audrey Hepburn. I, I think that was a, a very like charming and graceful way to point out the elephant in the room. Mm -hmm. Um, I will say like in watching the, the filmed, um, ceremony, it made me think of like, um, the way that, that, that cameras are used in these, these live events to build up kind of, um, uh, um, drama in a way. Like the one that, that really hit me when I first saw it was when Bill Murray lost for Rushmore. And um, when he lost, they just like, they didn't go to any of the other nominees. They just kept their camera on Bill Murray because mm -hmm. they just knew that everyone thought that he was the front runner, that it was going to be him. And then when he didn't get it, it's like, let's see how he reacts. And so I feel like when he was up they just kept cutting back to Julie Andrews. And so I think it was a way for him to acknowledge the work that she did. And, and Julie Andrews was very public of saying like, I have nothing against Audrey Hepburn. Um, she is not a part of this. Like she's fine, you know? Um, but I, I do feel it was like whoever was directing the event um, was, yeah. Trying to stir up a, a thing to make it interesting bit. yeah i don't know i kind of felt it was a slight like like you don't even get to be the fair lady i'm just gonna make you one of two fair ladies audrey hepburn like i don't know i, I it's like you know like are you being charming or is it or is it because you're british and you're being like <laughs> are we confusing like your british like accent with charm like um I don't know. I, I feel it really did. It's, it's... I feel like at least in the theater realm, there is a an idea that no one is going to play the, that role forever. That mm. you share it with other people. Um, um, so it's like I I think from that kind of standpoint, I think he just wanted to acknowledge that 
as a performer on Broadway and on film that he got to share the stage with these two women um, and that they both probably um, influenced his, his portrayal of Harry Higgins. Fair enough. Or Henry Higgins. Henry Higgins. Henry Higgins. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Henry Higgins. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, well, on that note, let's go ahead and take a quick break and come back and we will discuss our first film, the Best Picture winner of 1964, My Fair Lady. Sounds good. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, so jumping back into this, the movie musical has changed over the decades. In the golden era of cinema, movie studios would take the latest Broadway hit, infuse it with a star, and hope for the best. Now, performers need to show audiences that they have the bona fides to perform an iconic role. From Anne Hathaway singing live on set for Les Miserables, to the number of network live events for musicals like Grease, The Sound of Music, and Rent. But the 1964 musical My Fair Lady famously removed its star Audrey Hepburn's voice from the final product with the infamous ghost singer Marnie Nixon, who also sang for Maria in West Side Story and Anna in The King and I. Hepburn at the time did not know, or at least when she signed on to the project, did not know that they were gonna be dubbing her vocals. So Doran, I have this question for you. Does the, our modern sensibility allow you to still enjoy Hepburn's buoyant and lighthearted performance, even though it's only half hers? It doesn't, it really doesn't. And that it's just the whole time I, I mean, maybe the first part you understand why she's with him, but once she kind of comes out of her, her shell, lies too little, I'm like, why are you here? Why are you with this horrible, horrible man? <laughs> you know, that's all I kept getting throughout this film, you know? Um, well, so do you have much of a connection to the source material? Um, and just so everyone knows, it was based on um, a novel, but then 
uh, turned into a play by George Bernard Shaw called Pygmalion. Um, yeah, what's your relationship with the source material? No, no it's it's a surprise. I think I may have heard of the film, and, and I think the I have to look, but I think the 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 thirty eight film is actually nominated for a best picture, which is interesting. Mm. I did kind of look into it like a little bit in some similarities, but it hits almost the same beats. And I think that movie is under two hours. So I'm like, that's a, that's another thing where maybe I'm getting a, like in my older age, you know, or being a father with kids where it's like, come on now, like three hours. Like, and I get it, it's a musical. Um, but yeah, this was kind of like, I'm more interested in, in the non, in Pygmalion at this point, just, and I did see like, you know, the ending is is identical in the sense of lines and delivery where he's like, where are my slippers? But oddly enough, in that movie, it ends literally with a, a shot of the back of Henry Higgins' head. That's all you see is like, he just sits in a chair and you see the back of his head and it says, where are my slippers? It's such a weird... Um... Well, and I read that like, um, you know, although it was always meant to be like an ambiguous ending, um, Shaw never actually intended for them to get together. Um, although we might be jumping a little ahead, um, but, uh, but that he never like, like I think there was one point, I don't, I don't think there, this ever like came to fruition, but he wrote like an epilogue of like talking about how like um, uh, she actually ended up with Freddie, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, of just like kind of, um, taking in um, Higgins for a while, but then realizing like, what am I doing with him? Um, yeah, no, I, I would say that is a little tricky. Um, how did how did you stick with um, uh, Hepburn's dubbed voice? Like, do you feel like that affected the performance at all? Yeah, it's just hard to unsee it a bit. And I think there actually, isn't there like some small scenes or songs like where she's actually singing? Yes, so she's like actually, it's actually in um, Just You Wait. They use yeah. her uh, voice, but then they switch to um, Nixon during the bridge because it's supposed <laughs> to sound prettier. Um, but the thing that like frustrates me in, in all of that, and it's it's not about like the artistic product, but they had her like she trained to sing and she like went into all of this like and I feel like maybe that's why they wanted her to have the idea that she wasn't going to be singing along to someone else's voice um but like I feel like she puts in so much into the the performance of it and and into each of the songs that I could see like her just giving it all out on the day of performance because she probably was singing to a vocal track that was hers. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is just like kind of devastating, especially when you hear, I mean, you know, Hollywood, America, the world is sexist, but Rex Harrison, um, he <laughs> he couldn't sing at all. <laughs> yeah, And he like, and he had done the, sh- the show on Broadway, but then um, they, uh, they thought for the movie he, he needed to sound better. So he took vocal lessons. And then when um, they came back and they're like, Ugh, you still suck, just speak sing. And so he just kind of went back and didn't even try yeah. to sing. 
And it's like, well, wait, why? I mean, granted, I, I do understand that like, um, uh, uh, sorry, Eliza is, is a is a harder, you know, like um, singing role, but I don't know. I feel like that's pretty cruddy that you um, have so much less expectations of the man than you do for your lead female. Yeah, so much so like, all right, he does it in Dr. Doolittle, right? Like, doesn't, doesn't Dr. Doolittle come after this? Mm-hmm. Or am I real crazy? He makes a career out of speak singing. And it's like, um, you know, and I don't mind it, you know, like the way that some people, but you're right. Like she went through all this trouble only to get dubbed over. And it'd be interesting to see like what her actual sound would have been like i'd be curious to see what that you know know. i i wasn't able to find any um but maybe i could like i should have been searching a little bit more but supposedly in the 90s they did actually release a couple of numbers um where they just redubbed in her voice um since they obviously have the masters for her singing um but i think if you just take that one number of just just you wait like she sounds fine. Like she's full bodied. I I read one article that was um, coming from the standpoint of like an actual singer um, who wrote it and said that she just was lower in her register where, you know, the role of Eliza Doolittle is higher. um, And they didn't actually transpose the music to her voice. Um, And so it's just like, well, damn it. Why didn't you just I don't know, try, because I feel like these are all things that could have been figured out in pre-production or even in auditioning to make sure she could have the role is like fix or change the music to suit her and then um, see where it goes. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm also just a bad judge of these things anyway. Like I'm infamously known for liking, um, what is it Russell Crowe's voice as Javert? I'm the one. I mean, it's the, okay compared to historically how Javert's voice is supposed to sound and who else has played him. Yes, it doesn't hold anything, but I thought it was cool. It was interesting. No, I mean, but I, I never don't, hear the end of it. I don't think it fit the the show at yeah. all. I hated it. Um, <laughs> no, it, um, it, well, so actually, this kind of takes back. It sounded like he had a mouthful of marbles the entire show. <laughs> And to kind of go back to Audrey Hepburn, she like, though, I mean, and I, I think we'll probably talk about Julie Andrews and, and the possibility of her being in this role, but I thought Audrey Hepburn was adorable. I thought she was so enjoy, uh, enjoyable in this performance um, from the, the crazy um, Cockney accent she has to when she got to break. And one of those scenes that I loved was the Marvel scene. Um, when her eyes like just bulged out when she thought she had swallowed a marble. Um, she was actually eating grapes at the time, which I oh. thought was an interesting little side note. Um, but I thought she was amazing in that. I thought when she broke out at the horse race and, um, you know, trying to get the horse to, to run quicker was adorable. I, I, and then actually then from like an emotional standpoint, um, let me just get the song. It's you did it. It's you did it. You did it. I really yeah, did yeah. it done. Really, um, yeah. And she's, but so I, I, to cut this a little bit better, 
Um, the emotional stakes that she had in that scene where they're playing around her and she's just in this corner with her shoulders slumped and her head down, like, um, it, though I think the movie did a disservice by not letting the audience get to hear what her vocal performance was in all those songs, I feel like the physicality that she brought to the role um, was just great. Like, I feel like you in this performance saw why she was a movie star. I still don't know. I mean, I've never seen the, um, the Broadway adaptation of this, but like, I still just, I can't, the shadow of Julie Andrews still seems, I could feel it. Like, and, and I could hear her in the song, in the dubbing, I could hear, I could hear Julie Andrews. Like, that's a weird thing having never even seen the play, but like just something about the songs and the way they come across, or maybe, maybe Nixon dubbing is trying to do her best Julie Andrews, but I could kind of hear that. I don't know how to describe it. So it's really hard for me to go into like this and not hear that. Um, I didn't think she did a bad job at all. I think she's amazing. And Audrey Hepburn's Audrey, Hep Audrey Hepburn, but I, I think it's crazy at the same time what would have happened to Mary Poppins yeah. if, if that, so it's like, okay, that's how it is. Um, well, I don't think Julie, I think Julie Andrews would have still gotten to be Mary Poppins because supposedly Walt Disney was goo goo over Andrews and would have like halted production. Um, yeah, I think they, they even like, she was pregnant. She was pregnant. Yeah. So she yeah. had a baby and they waited six months um, but but there was even talk of if she was cast in My Fair Lady, they were still going to wait to do Mary Poppins with her. Um, I think she got her just desserts of being able to win an Oscar over My Fair Lady that year. Um, uh, if they didn't, if she didn't accept it, they were going to give it to Elizabeth Taylor, um, which I don't see at all. Um, <laughs> but uh but even still I like I I don't know I I thought Hepburn was the best part of this movie I had so much fun when she was on stage and um I mean the fire scene when she was talking into the um the thing where the flame was coming up yeah, yeah. it was adorable and how she gets lost in her reflection and then the page comes up on fire. Like I, I just, I'm going to keep using the word adorable, but she was adorable, <laughs> adorable, adorable. Uh, and I, I think she was one of the few things that actually worked in this movie. It brings up, and I've been thinking about, I have this in my notes kind of transition a bit. And I've thought about this for like, like what either is the point of taking a musical and putting it onto stage or onto film or what, what makes a musical onto film like worthwhile. And the only two, that I'm curious what you think, but to me, there's only like two real reasons. One is you could do something with film to this play that you can't do on stage, or we'll make this more interesting, like Chicago in my mind, like Chicago is a great example, or um, West Side Story, or it's just, this needs to be shown to the masses and to expand it like it just it it's hit this cultural bubble so much that it needs to like go out there so and 
gain its footing even further. I do think you're right about like a movie musical having um, the right um, angle where I think Chicago definitely like being able to go into Roxy's head and so all of the musical numbers were basically her fantasies was this different cinematic look at it that that it needed to be um and then I think it's kind of like preservation of a performance which ultimately even though it was a flop um the producers Mel Brooks moved forward because he really 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 wanted Nathan Lane and Mel Brooks or not Mel Brooks Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick's performances to be recorded um he actually didn't even really want to do a like a movie version he just wanted to have a um really well done filmed version of the stage production which honestly with what Hamilton Hamilton did um that probably would have been the better option because the producers was a huge flop um but yeah I, I so like when it then comes to this it it does beg the differ of like, what is the purpose of it? Because if you didn't want to preserve Julie Andrews' performance, I don't, who, who the hell cares about Rex Harrison? Um, and uh, this actually kind of takes in, I thought this was a poorly shot movie. I feel like the staging of musical numbers were actually pretty like boring yeah. and jumbled. Uh, one that I was like very kind of frustrated with was, um, uh the rain in spain um i kind of thought it was like a weaker sadder version of good morning from um singing in the rain because like you have these two men and this this beautiful young woman and they have been staying up but suddenly there is a light bulb above their head they have this new idea they have this understanding and they're celebrating and Good Morning, even though I think Gene Kelly rehearsed and shot it to death, still has this buoyancy and, and drive about it and, and fun about it, where this seemed just kind of lazy. And like, I just didn't, I, there, was, there was even like this little matador reference, which I feel like they do in Singing in the Rain as well. And it just seemed lethargic. Um, and just sad. Like, I, I just didn't like it. Um, so if you were to kind of use your own kind of thought of like the reasons why you make a movie musical, why do you think this was made then? I think uh, clearly for the cultural impact, like this, this film, this play was so popular at its time. And it was just like a no brainer that this would, people would go to, and it clearly worked. I mean, it was the number two film of the year. Yeah. So I think, I think it had hit um, but so you know. one thing I will say, cause I, I agree with you on the timing of it. Um, and I do think that with, um, a, like when it goes to a stage production, I will, I'm fine sitting down for three hours because one, I'm usually paying quite a bit more than I would to go see a film. And, um, two, it's just, there's a rich tradition of like, of the American musical um, of having specific touchstones, you know, like you have the I want song, you have the 11 o'clock number, 
Um, you have the dance number that reveals something about a character. Um, you have a villain introduction number, like philosophy song. So like, I'm fine with taking these slower beats, but sitting and watching um, uh, My Fair Lady, um, which I had to watch partly through my daughter's nap, and then I had to end it that night. Um, I think there's so much you could have cut. What would you have cut if you had? Oh, I mean, that's a tough thing because it's like, what to me saves this film is the songs. And so like, you don't, it, again, going back to the cultural impact of this movie, there are so many songs that people just never seen this movie that instantly recognize it. And the thing is, is that some of them are the ones I would cut because more so because of the story that the story doesn't add anything. Yeah. So again, this is where we get into hot takes, but like the, 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 the father's like character. You don't uh, need it. I would cut it. I, I, but then you lose, what do you lose? You lose Take like- Take me to the church get, on time or give me- yeah you, time, yeah, you lose, um, oh, what else does he sing that's really- really some some really good uh, with songs. a little bit of luck yeah, yeah. With a little bit yeah so these are uh, really great songs but his story is pointless i feel like so that's 15 20 minutes right there and i like, will I say like... that stanley holloway i didn't love his performance i mm-hmm. having seen it on broadway twice i got to see it with um uh danny burt's bursting bernstein the um no, it's bursting Danny Burstein um, the first time and then Norbert Leo Butts the second. And maybe it was just the direction of this production, but the father had a little bit more edge and a little more darkness to him that like made these plucky little songs like seem so juxtaposed to how, who they really were. Um, and I, and I just didn't really feel like that was coming out in, in this performance. So yeah, that that but that's my hot dig is to cut. And I know you lose some pretty iconic songs, but there's plenty of other iconic songs in this that like more than would, you know, um, I would, I don't know about you, but like, there's also some like small parts of songs or small songs where I'm like, or like the staff is singing or something like that. Oh, or, yeah. yeah, no. Well, I mean, so the one thing I would, I would get rid of Freddie's storyline. I don't think he's very needed. And I know it gives you on the street where you live. I can't cut that song, man. That is such a- It's gone. It's done. I mean, it was an audition number for me for like, for many years, it was in my audition book. I love the song. You don't need it. It is. It just needs to go find a way to give it to Rex Harrison and he'll speak sing it. Um, but uh, no, it, that needs to go. And, and I will completely agree with you in um, the numbers of the chorus singing for Professor Higgins. I thought, and, and I, maybe it was a way of us to kind of see the absurdity that we were supposed to care about this man who is teaching about genteelness and proper you know, etiquette. But um, I just listened to those songs being like, why do I care about this person? Like, and also just again, to go with the struggles or not the struggles, but the, the, the cruddiness of the staging of it is I feel like there were times when the staff were like looking in different directions. They weren't like looking around that I didn't even know who was singing. 
I was just like, wait, what is even going on in this moment? Um, and it sucks because like, I feel like, um, and maybe we could kind of talk a little bit about the technical aspects of it, is that the, um, the, the set design was amazing. You had these huge, glorious sets, the racetrack, the streets of London, and they were wide and expansive. And I feel like they just got clusters of people and they didn't really ever do anything with it. They're just visual pieces and are beautiful, but doesn't, it was like a painting, yeah. you know? Um, it's the whole movement part that seems to be, you know, missing from that. Um, um, this film win best editing or no? Let's see. No. Mary Poppins. Okay, but it was nominated. So what if you had a favorite song, what is your favorite song from the show? Probably on the street where you live. Like that's like the yeah. So so I'm like I for me it would it would be wouldn't it be loverly? I oh yes. feel like that's such yeah. a pretty song. And again, like Audrey Hepburn's performance of it, even though we didn't get her voice, like I felt like her face just radiated from the dirt and the smudges that was that layered her like yeah I I really love that song so let's let's just dive straight into the ending then um what what were your thoughts on it and where do you think it kind of takes us I said angry (laughs) um I both thematically and just story-wise, like I would have, it would have been a way better movie if she would have left his ass, like, you know, even to come back to him later, but to like really leave him. Yeah. And, and because he learned absolutely nothing, you know, um, it just infuriates me. And then he just orders her to like get her slippers or something. And it's like, you know, not just because of the Me Too stuff, but like, um, but also just like his whole demeanor, like, de- like, but his only thing is like, oh, don't worry. It's not, it's like some point where he's like, it's not me. I'm just, I'm basically just saying like, I'm an asshole. I mean, I'm, I'm a dick to everybody. Like, it's not just because of your flower girl or whatever. Yeah. Um, well, but so the revival, yeah. um, they actually did change it. Uh, they have this confrontation from the, the, the record playing. And he says, get me my slippers. She looks at him and then turns around and walks away. Yeah. Um, And so, I mean, I think there is part of us to, I think it's still ambiguous in the way that like, because it is a silent moment, you don't know if she is just like walking into the room to get his slippers Um, (laughs) or uh, is she walking out the door? but I think it, it at least gives her a little more agency where here having op- her Audrey Hepburn like kind of smile a little bit um, just makes you go, what, why? Um, especially because you seem to be this very like um, controlled woman um, that like knows her worth now. And so like, why would you accept that? Um, but like do you think maybe she just feels a sense of like um is loyalty the right word or just ownership like like did he give me something that i not would have had on my own by 
you know, schooling me and doing these things. And so I have a sense of obligation to be with this man because of that. Even though she clearly doesn't know she deserves better and can do way better. My idea was that it was almost like a, a sense of acceptance um, that like when she was able to come back and, and have this like kind of saying back to him and then he gives this line then it's a way of her feeling like they're able to kind of get back into this like I, I, I don't think that works, but that's just how I was trying to justify it. Um, and speaking of that, Higgins is such a like cruddy person. What did you think of Rex Harrison, especially since he played it on Broadway, played it on film? Like, mm-hmm. what did you think of his performance? I mean, I think the first go around when I saw this, I, th- I thought of him as a charming dude and it was kind of cool. Like, you know, but like no like this time around he's just a jerk and you know if you're a jerk like that you don't deserve to be that happy and i you know there was no arc for this man in my opinion like he realizes he loves her and wants to be with her but that's it mm-hmm. he doesn't have a in my mind he doesn't have a real sense of loss or regret or remorse for anything he's done um and it's just, I don't know what the message of this movie is then. <laughs> yeah. Um. Um, and I feel like at this point, I feel like we've kind of tapped out on this. Do you want to take a quick break and come back and talk about um, uh, Dr. Strangelove? Yeah, let's, let's cleanse this palette. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. about the possibility of something going wrong with the bomb. The bomb, Dimitri. The hydrogen bomb. Well, now, what happened is um, one of our base commanders, he had a sort of, well, he went a little funny in the head. You know, just a little funny. And uh, he went and did a silly thing. Well, I'll tell you what he did. He ordered his planes to attack your country. Uh, Well, let me finish, Dimitri. Let me finish, Dimitri. Well, listen, how do you think I feel about it? Can you imagine how I feel about it, Dimitri? Why do you think I'm calling you? Just to say hello? Of course I like to speak to you. Of course I like to say hello. Not now, but any time, Dimitri. I'm just calling up to tell you something terrible has happened. It's a friendly call. Of course it's a friendly call. Listen, if it wasn't friendly, you probably wouldn't have even got it. Welcome back, everybody, to the great Oscar Redux. Um, you know, you know, Simon, in prepping for this movie, like something kind of like got in my brain and just kind of stayed there. And I'm just like, 
going to throw it to you and, and kind of contrasting uh, My Fair Lady and, and Dr. Strangelove. So, you know, My Fair Lady is obviously a lighthearted film, but something about it like commands, when I say seriousness, maybe attention is the right word. Um, and you take it more seriously or are more invested just because of some sort of facade. Whereas Dr. Strangelove, on the other hand, is I, I feel like intentionally like doing things to like make you want to not take it seriously from even the beginning with the like sexual overtones of like the plane refueling, you know, versus just the, the absurd like names of people like Dr. You know, Jack the Ripper or Kong or um, I'm trying to think of the other ones like, and it's just like, I, I think sometimes it's like flipping the coin in a bit that if, if maybe if Dr. Strangelove would have took itself, even though it's what makes it iconic is it's, it's comedy. If it would have taken itself just a little more seriously, we, we might not be talking about this as a runner up. Um, Steven, what, why don't you take it from there? What do you, what do you think? Am I, am I onto something or am I completely off base? I will say that I actually, one thing that I did really appreciate the satire of this film was how, and I, and I saw in your notes, like um, the like absurdity of certain lines that were delivered, delivered in such like a straight kind of way. Um, and, and how this film, I feel actually did strike, um, if not like a serious tone, a, not knowing tone um, of all the characters, I feel like we're fully invested in like the given circumstances of what they did. And I felt they never were winking at us from um, Mandrake not wanting to um, help Ripper shoot the gun to Kong listing off all of the things in the survival kit to strange love calling um, the president mine hair, like, uh, or not mine hair, um, mine Fuhrer. Um, mine hair is cabaret. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, that like, um, that I, that I feel like it struck its tone so well that I, I, I don't necessarily see how it could have been done any differently. Um, because I, I do feel like I was even reading that, um, Sellers originally when he was playing, um, president, uh, what is his name? Uh, Muffley. Yeah. Okay. Um, president Muffley that originally he had developed this like idea of a, of a cold for him and that, you know, that was going to be like his kind of shtick. And in filming, they realized that like, oh no, we just need to play him straight. Like we need to play him down the road, Midwesterner president. And um, it was recognizing that they didn't need to take him big, but they needed George C. Scott across the table to be hamming it up um, to balance things out really um, yeah, I, I thought the tone of this movie was just kind of remarkable, especially for the 60s. I don't I don't know why it, it means something to say like for something so old, but uh, I think the tone was just 
great. So then maybe like I guess and the reason why I, I kind of got this in my head is I don't know if you agree, but watching this film and watching the categories, not just the ones that didn't win anything, basically, but the stuff that it wasn't even nominated for, like cinematography, like do you agree that this film should have gotten a more recognition? And why? Why did this not get recognized? Was it just that everything else and everybody else's portrayal and version and, and editing was so much better? I, I don't happen to think so. I, I think there's something about the the genre, the comedy-ness that 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 just kind of was dismissive by the Academy, and I think it's a shame. Do you do you disagree with that? Or or why do you think this film didn't get the love that it that it made? have deserved i mean well i will say it in 64 we were pretty still deep in the space race weren't we yeah and very early on in in vietnam so yeah so like i feel like i i, I think in in any kind of like time of strife it's it is hard to have something that points out the the lunacy of of you know government actions um and and yeah i mean i i guess you do have a, an argument of saying like the comedic elements are the reason why um maybe it's not as well or at least at the at the time wasn't as respected as say um like my fair lady or mary poppins where you can have more comedy in 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 a musical you know it's a little more accepted um I guess like my pushback is that I, if you take out the satire and you take out the humor of it, I just don't know what is the movie that you have, mm -hmm. you know? Um, is it like, I, I just don't, I, yeah. I, and when it does come to the things that it didn't necessarily get nominated for, um, I think you're right. Like with cinematography, that's the one that kind of blows my mind the most just because of, um, it just seems that every shot seems so like um, painstakingly like thought out um, that why it didn't necessarily get accolades in in those um, categories I, I can't necessarily speak to. Uh, but something that I did want to kind of connect with you is this being a Stanley Kubrick film. Um, what is your relationship with him and uh have you seen all of his movies so i i think i've seen quite a all right so i've i've definitely seen a a lot of kubrick's films um i'm thinking that the ones i haven't i haven't seen eyes wide shot which is his last movie um and some of the earlier films too so like he has a lot of um kind of pulpy movies at the beginning, like The Killer's Kiss, like these noir films. I have seen The Killing, which I really, really love. Um, but I think the first non, like obviously you have these classics like 2001. That's probably the first film I saw of his. Um, and then Full Metal Jacket. And then I went back to see, you know, I think in college, the first thing I picked up was Paths of Glory, which I thought was just absolutely brilliant. Oh, and did you rewatch Barry Lyndon? Yeah, yeah, for one of them, and and that was a surprise. And how much, like, he really really struck me as a film, you know, like a filmmaker's filmmaker kind of thing, and like a, like a Wes Anderson or like a um, 
uh I'm blanking out like a Ryan Johnson like kind of thing where he like mu- he had to have like the lighting with these candles that they like and in- not invented these special candles but used these specialized candles that they could film but still use natural lighting which blows my mind um yeah so I've seen pretty much everything on his list except for maybe the first like two or three films from the 50s mm-hmm. um you know and and obviously he's a, he's a masterpiece it's, it's a, he's a genius um what about you uh less so of of not that he's a, a of a genius but less so that i've seen um because a lot of his movies i honestly saw when i was too young i uh, like i've seen the shining i've seen eyes wide shut i've seen full metal jacket but all of those before I was like 16. Um, and so I think uh, like The Shining just scared me. Eyes Wide Shut just perplexed me and Full Metal Jacket just made me so scared <laughs> of like the military. Um, uh, I will say I did see 2001 recently uh, at the Alamo Draft House in, in downtown Brooklyn. Um, yeah, and, and that was that was very like said to be seen um, just because there was so much to kind of talk about uh, with that movie. Um, so, I mean, I think ultimately when it comes to his oeuvre, like I can't, like, I feel like I need to come back to all these movies, um, especially like Eyes Wide Shut and Full Metal Jacket and The Shine, like I guess all of them um, because I just, I think I was just too young to take them in and really like have any kind of understanding of them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, so yeah, that's, that's kind of where I, I fall on him. Um, and then I did want to say just to kind of get out of our ways, what's your relationship to like Peter Sellers and George C. Scott? Um, so I never, you know, full confession, I've never seen any of the Pink Panther movies. Me yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah, which I think is like, I don't know, I feel like it's a blind side, but I love Peter Sellers and like I've seen um what is it becoming or what is the name of being, right? But kind of like the same thing where you know a lot of his films just he so often as a comedian never really taken seriously. Um, but I think a lot of his portrayals like have these like silly um portrayals but they're really serious characters in there oh so so being there was what i was thinking about where he was um is he nominated for best actor nominated for best actor so he's been nominated twice for best actor but never won and it's hard to say like would he have should he have won it for this year should he won it for seven for being there but just you know um i also think his his portrayal in uh what in Lolita is just really, really good. And, and that's kind of what propelled him into Dr. Strange Love, I think. Although he had been known for playing multiple characters. And there's a, a movie called um, The Mouse That Roared, mm-hmm. which is, I don't know if you've seen this, but it's basically about like a really tiny fictional country that declares war on uh, the United States or whatever. And he plays like three characters, including like a king or a queen or something like that. It's been ages since I've seen that, but um, pulling out the Pink Panther movies, like that's my kind of relationship. What about you? Uh, 
like next to nothing. Um, like the only movie looking at his filmography that I have any kind of relationship with is Murder by Death. And that's because it's a Neil Simon movie. Mm. Um, and I saw that long, long, long ago. And I don't, I don't remember at all. Um, how, yeah. So, uh, although I do remember, so, um, I, in 2004, I was in college and I was working at a um, video store called Hastings, um, which if anyone is from the Midwest, they, uh, and you lived in a college town, you probably had a Hastings. Uh, but there was this TV movie, The Life and Death of Peter Sellers with George, uh, or no, Jeffrey Rush, um, that I never saw, but I always remember seeing the like DVD cover for it. <laughs> um, and that just sticking out to me like none other. So just looking at that right now online, I'm like, oh my gosh, I remember this this cover if anything um but uh and then so what about george c scott do you have a favorite george c scott kind of performance trying to like obviously there's Patton. um i think isn't he in he's in the hustler right he is yeah that was a great performance i loved it in that i'm surprised he wasn't nominated for supporting actor in this in this year in this role um did you see how they got the performance out of him for no for Stanley uh for this um well first off I'll tell you my favorite George C. Scott performance um is Angus the teen comedy from 1990 it's not coming up on his thing (laughs) he has too many movies isn't he also um, like, and I don't know if it counts because they're like TV stuff, but isn't he, um, he's Scrooge, right? Isn't he, he is Scrooge, Scrooge yeah. And he is he that. also Ahab? Uh, oh, I'm, I could definitely see him doing that. But I know he's Scrooge. Not Fangus, Angus. Um, Angus is 1995. That's what I thought it was. Um, but uh, no, he played the grandfather in it. It is heartwarming and it is beautiful and wonderful. But in uh, the film that we're talking about today, Clockwork Orange, um, sorry, Stanley Kubrick. Oh yeah, Doctor Strangelove. Wait, Clark- what did I say? I Sorry. said Doctor yeah. Doctor Clockwork Orange. <laughs> Doctor Strangelove. Um, uh, Kubrick wanted him to do these big bombastic takes and. Um, in order to get him to agree to do it because he wanted it to be done in a much subtler way. They said, um, okay, I just want you to practice it as big as you can um, and just practice it and we'll, we'll film it, but know that we'll do the next take, which will be smaller and more like in line with what you're thinking. And that is the take we'll use. And he obviously used the takes that he wanted to. And uh, Scott said that he would never work with Kubrick again because he wow. felt he was lied to. Wow. That's crazy. Because it's the best. It's one of those, best, I think one of his best performances. Oh, it's amazing. I forget what was happening, but there's the one speech that he's giving in the, um, in the war room. And it's just so loose. His arm or his, his uh, shirt is rolled up 
his shirt sleeves are rolled up and it's just it's it's as if he's like almost like a marionette and yeah. um his hands are just like moving back and forth and his head is cocking to the side um uh and then also to see him be able to become really kind of strict and 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 tight when he uh has his 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 military uniform on um it's yeah like i think it's an amazing performance i think another just unsung kind of thing is, is sterling hayden who's um was a jack ripper yeah right or it's just it just and like that's where like my favorite part of the cinematography is where they're like shooting him from like below with this like crazy eyed like you know it's just terrifying it's a terrifying like betrayal and it just makes you like kind of afraid how fragile everything is because if you just had the wrong person with the wrong ac access to like the worst destruction yeah. this is what we end up with and how easy it could be that 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 could happen um another one where i wish you would have gotten a nod for a supporting actor mm -hmm. um it's only like it's probably shorter than than scott but both of them i felt like were great supporting actors um uh, if yeah. going back to peter sellers which do you think is his role that is the best see that's another thing that's like a hot take man everybody's recognizes him for strange love but i think his role as the president is i don't know why it's just so funny it's, to me that's the funniest one because it's just like he sounds like a like a like a car salesman or something this kind of mild-mannered like you know oh wait a minute like kind of kind of thing Oh no, the speech that he gives to Dimitri about like, I can be sorry too. I The brilliance of it is that there is actual real pain in his voice. And so, you know, and kind of going back to just the, like the straight nature of the performances is if he would have like really dug into this idea of having a cold and and being sick and, and that's what he was playing up, I think it would have taken away. Like, I, I feel like, so many people in this are uh, actors and in, in um, or performers in this film felt like they were in a drama. Um, it's it's just because of the just like the straight nature um, delivery of of everything they gave. Um, the but the Dimitri um, kind of like monologue esque phone conversation was my favorite. Um, I do I do enjoy Mandrake. I. I feel like there was a lot of mileage going on between him and Ripper. Uh, mm -hmm. What were your thoughts on that performance? Yeah, I, I enjoyed it as well. I just, I don't know, is that the probably the least stretch for Sellers to portray and seem the most like himself, not just because it's a British character, but just seemed like, you know, that just seemed to encapsulate like, I guess like the British take on all this absurdity, like the, the, yeah. this, keep straight face in the you know in the face of this like nonsense kind of thing what um, were your thoughts on slim pickens because i mean originally it was he was supposed to uh sellers was supposed to play major kong do you yeah how did, what did you think of his performance i can't i can't imagine anyone else in it though it's such a perfect transition iconic role yeah um i guess i could see sellers doing it and he even tried but he never wanted to do it and it just was the fact that he got like, I guess like a broken arm or something like that, where it was just coincident that he just 
was excused from playing a fourth role. Um, yeah, this, I will this... say, like, just for symmetry, I think it would have made sense because I feel like it's the one thing that Sellers doesn't have his hands on in this yeah. film, yeah, you know, true. and like just in the way that it was constructed, I think it it was it was created to have this fourth role be filled out by the same actor. Um, but even still, uh, he he was great. Like, cause I, I think at the, the point of, um, the, the, when he's riding the, the rocket down, um, the way that the screen behind him suddenly gets so close and right before the, um, the explosion and, and just the kind of dead silence, I, I feel like we get a, at least a few seconds of silence that like, I always have the iconic just image of him just going like this, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. the sudden, like, I am going to say the word seriousness, but the sudden seriousness of like going, Oh, nope. Death, destruction, mayhem, you know, came from this like supposedly very funny little bit that they were doing. Um, and and it's it's his performance that I think really carries it off. Yeah, no, no disagreements on that. Uh, what did you think about um, the use of black and white? And do you feel like it could have been done in color? I don't know what this would have looked like. I think black and white is perfect. I don't know how much of a choice it was. Maybe it was a budgetary choice, but like it seemed perfect. And that's one of the things that actually make you kind of take it seriously or know that like, it's like, this is like a funny, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. It just kind of sets the tone better than a color film could ever do, I think. Well, and I, and I do think you're able to like, and, and maybe this kind of goes with what you're saying with the budgetary kind of things, but it masks certain special events or effects. Um, I feel like, oh, I, I'm, and I might be wrong. I, I wasn't able to actually find how they did this, but a lot of the airplane scenes, I just feel like it was a model oh, yeah. in front of oh, us. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I think it was and, very good for it, but oh yeah. Yeah. But and it always reminds me of um, the movie Zelik. Did you ever see that? The, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And how I feel like a lot of the ways they were able to kind of bring in that found footage um element is because being in black and white they're just it, i think you're just able to hide a lot more of the um the inaccuracies or or like you know um the movie tricks that you're coming from and yeah. uh i there was one scene where there was chaos happening in the um mm. the cockpit and there were lights being flown everywhere but there was so much darkness in between that I have no idea what was going on that set, but like the the sense of chaos was effectively communicated and it looked beautiful where if it was had been done in color, who knows what would have been the payoff for it. Mm -hmm. Um was there anything else you wanted to chat about? No, why don't we why don't we with that, why don't we end this segment? Uh take a quick break. And when we come back, let's talk about some, some references and some head-to-head -head stuff. Great. 
Before we get started, does anyone want to get out? Here we go. Let's not stand on ceremony here. We're going down. No. No way. I wouldn't want to fight me neither. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. From hell's My challenge! The ancient laws of combat! Consider our fight begun! Welcome back, everybody. Uh, thank you so much for joining us here on The Great Oscar Redux. I am your co-host, Stephen, and I am joined today with Doran. You just heard our new theme for our head-to-head -head, uh, section. Um, but before we get into uh, where we get to discuss these two films, we always want to talk about the cultural impact of them uh, and who had the most long-lasting impact. Uh, Doran. I was gonna say, also known as our our way to show Simpsons clips, and yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which is like the litmus test of the, how long and lasting kind of kind of thing. Well, uh, so Doran, walk us down the the lane of the Simpsons. How well, has the Simpsons? Um, well, obviously, there's the there's an entire episode where they basically do this with Groundskeeper Willie. Uh, My Fair Lady, or it's called yeah, I think the episode is called My Fair Laddie or whatever. Um, and basically, they do all the songs almost verbatim. Why don't we take a listen to oh, one of those? Want is a place somewhere. And? That's it. Maybe you could aim a little higher. Well, let's see. Oh, to have me shock rebuilt. Get my rotten teeth all drilled. Something on underneath me kilts. Oh, wouldn't it be adequate? So there's that reference, which is an entire episode, but my personal, I know it's such a small thing, but my personal favorite reference to My Fair Lady is in one of the Sideshow Bob episodes, he actually sings, I've grown accustomed to your face to Bart, but like, I can't do it. Well, why not? Well, I guess I, dear God, Grown accustomed to your face. I've grown accustomed to his face and dreams of gouging out his eyes. Basically, like, I can't kill you now. Like, <laughs> <laughs> not like I want to, you know, be friends with you. Um, and then, um, I don't know if you're a nanny or anybody's a nanny fan, but there's actually a nanny episode where they basically do the same thing. And then Steven, do you want to add anything else or you've got? And I, I think this last little Simpsons bit on um, Dr. Strange Love is where Homer actually rides uh, the H-bomb in Homer the Vigilante in season five, episode 11. 
Say it's a miniature version of the A-bomb. The government built it in the 50s to drop on beatniks. Radiant, cool, crazy nightmares and New Jersey nowhere. Put this in your pipe and smoke it. How now, brown bureaucrats? I I will say to kind of go into just the the cultural impact of these films. I think ultimately uh the beginnings of um poking fun at the Cold War and um, being able to uh, point a finger at Russia. Um, I think if not be directly connected to Dr. Strangelove, at least for myself, I feel like that's where I know where it kind of began. Um, And then I think it, you know, manifested into all these other things Um, as silly as um, uh, Bullwinkle, where you had Boris and Natasha um, to um, anything more serious where it's like an episode of the Wonder Years and they're talking about, um, you know, uh, bomb raids. Um, so I, I do think that ultimately just because of the topic, um, Dr. Strangelove had um, kind of more of a cultural impact. Uh, agree or disagree? I do. I'm a little shocked. Like I would have thought there were more, I know using the Simpsons as a litmus, there'd be more references to that. And there are a few others that we didn't discuss, like small things. Like I know in um, the monorail episode, basically the scientist that's there is, is a, you know, a proxy for a, for a Dr. Strangelove. But um, yeah, I think, I don't know. It's pretty close, though. It is pretty close. Um, um, but so then let's actually do that and jump into our head to head. So mm-hmm. as we do every month, we think of thematic kind of um, connections that have with these films. And we, uh, in order to help get us closer to our final decision, we kind of talk it through. So the first thing, one that I want to bring up is um, the idea of legends. Uh, We have our screen legend of Audrey Hepburn versus the screen legend of Peter Sellers. Who do you feel like wins in that category, Doran? That's tough. And, and, you know, Hepburn is definitely more recognized, but I think she even, like, I know there's a, she's in like a, not a horror film, but like a suspense movie in, what is it? um, after what's it called after dark or something like that where and this came out like a year later where she plays a blind woman who is being robbed like inside her house it's very 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 tense movie so i think she like kind of runs the gamut of types of portrayals but so does peter sellers like i mean being there is a very 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 interesting like character um and I just don't think he gets enough credit for for what he brought to this to the screen. So, it's and I'd a, say especially mm. for the these two projects, like, and and I know that I've gone on 
talking about how amazing Hepburn was in this film, even though we don't get to hear her sing. Um, I think just the mere uh, flexibility that that Sellers is having going from character to character is just mm-hmm. it but, is yeah. just the the bigger, um, more legendary screen presence for me with these two films. And and we're talking about these portrayals. So like the character of Doolittle versus the three characters. If, if you're yeah. talking about that, then yeah, absolutely. Because I think I think these three characters are more iconic to Sellers than Doolittle is to to Hepburn. She still has Holly Golightly. She still has uh, I'm blanking on the name of Roman Holiday and so many other Sabrina, like all these other things that are pretty iconic. Uh-huh. Um, but I just think that Sellers overall like just doesn't doesn't get the credit that he deserves for for what he brought and some of the subtlety because he's a comedian. Um, what other head to head do you want to talk about? So I just want to like point out just again thinking about both films like the kind of male centricness of both of these films. One with Strange Love being this like patriarchy of guys like running the show and how horribly wrong everything goes. And, and even the references, like I thought it was like, you know, where they're like, oh, we'll have to, we'll have to select women, like 10, 10 women for every one guy, you know, kind of thing versus like uh, My Fair Lady where you have like Rex Harrison being like, you know, like why can't men, women be more like men? Like just like silly women with their emotions. Like, you know, um, anything you I, add? I think um, in that, I, I, I think Strange Love uh, wins in that way because of stakes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think us being able to see that it's the end of the world um, and everything is so heightened in, in at least like, um, and the actions of the characters, even if it's not so much in the delivery of, of the actors, uh, that the the male misogyny happening um, just seems more pointed and more of a comment where um, like in Mary Poppins, it just feels like- In My Fair Lady, sorry. Good Lord. Um, I'm just not hitting, I'm not batting a thousand right now, Uh, at least with titles. Um, But with My Fair Lady, it just like, like with his song at the end, I think there is supposed to be some like absurdity to what he is saying, but I just feel like throughout the entire film, we're supposed to sympathize more with him. And I just don't understand Mm -hmm. why, especially when it's just like, Oh, can we church up or class up this, this woman's dialect, you know? Like, do you get the sense that it's more like uh, my fair lady is, male-centric and it just doesn't age well versus like like at least strange love is really already ahead of its time pointing out like how absurd this is and how dangerous this is um i think i think there is some truth to that um i think especially when it comes to some of these like classical musicals that it's going how do we in our more like enlightened kind of um places that we are now how do we still get to enjoy the beautiful music. Um, Cause if, if these were plays, I think people would be 
far more willing to just say goodbye to them. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think because these stories are connected to such beautiful songs, um, people want to hear it again. Um, And how they hear it is by watching the show. Uh, That like, it's gonna, it's gonna make it um, more difficult in that way. Um, What do you think? Do you agree? Yeah, I think that's about right. Um, I did actually want to talk about like if if we were to take on the themes of these um, of, of these films, I think one is uh, My Fair Lady talking about the subtlety of classism and how like um, silly it is that that someone is is judged um, basically just in the way that they look and the way that they talk. And then with um, Dr. Strangelove um, just being this overt satire of war and the idiocy that comes with like nuclear war, mm-hmm. um, which you think was did a better job of maybe um, getting these messages across to the audience? I mean, this is tough because like you use the word subtlety. So I feel like My Fair Lady is way more subtle than obviously and everything in Dr. Strangelove is, is over the top i mean i think the things that struck me with strange love in terms of war is just the they kept using the term gap you know and a lot of things and the like the arms race part of it so there's like the mine shaft gap or there's like another reference to like the the doomsday gap and so it's just the sake of you know pointing out this that mutually assured destruction like like i you know i thought it was brilliant to point that out and how ridiculous that whole thing is. And it just leads people down individual destruction as opposed to like, you know, preventing us from a nuclear war uh, mm-hmm. going, going back. I mean, with the Soviet Union, it probably made them bankrupt, like to, to, to keep up in an arms race. Um, but, you know, I almost want to give it to, to my fair lady because it's like, you know, that's one thing that elevated, I think, Hepburn's performance at the end where she starts talking about, um, you know, and I, I'm blanking on the other character's name, who's like the friend of um, Henry Higgins. Oh, he's the colonel. Yeah, and it's like, he treats me with respect, like, you know, whether I'm a flower girl or, or not, or something like that. Um, but then it's like, Greg Harrison's like, no, I'm just an asshole to everybody. So like, don't you, don't take it seriously. Um, but I think, think the thing with My Fair Lady is it only comes at the end. Or, or, or its climax comes at the end, whereas, you know, with Dr. Trainslove, it's picked, it's peppered in throughout. And obviously there's that giant ending with the bomb, but I think I think it's a little more uh, balanced in training. Yeah. What, what do you think? Uh, the same. Um, I, mainly because I, I feel like the... Um, the the theme of of war and its critique of it um i think are are on the forefront of the filmmaker's mind in strange love and i feel like any kind of like lesson or big idea um definitely played uh second banana um to the music to the colors to the costumes um, and so I, yeah, I, I, 
And I don't think those things were in service to any kind of bigger um, Mm -hmm. point that they were trying to make. So uh, yeah, I I think I I definitely fall on, on strange love for that, for that section. Um, But let's actually take another tiny break and let's come back and we will um, declare if the Academy Awards got it correct in 1964, and then we'll close out the show. Sounds good. Welcome back to the Great Oscar Redux. My name is Stephen. I am with our other host, Doran. Uh, Doran, we are here to officially lay claim. Did the Academy get it right when, in 1964, they handed the um, the statuette to My Fair Lady? Nope, absolutely not. <laughs> the same. Uh, yeah. I. I, you know, and I am someone who loves a good movie musical, uh, and I enjoy My Fair Lady um, as a stage play. I just feel like um, there was a lot that was lost in this translation um, or adaptation. Uh, you know, they're they're redoing West Side Story with Steven Spielberg, and other than hopefully them, um, you know, actually getting. Hispanic people to portray Hispanic people, <laughs> um, I, which I guess is is a reason in itself to to redo it. I just don't know why they're redoing it. I, um, yeah. And so I I guess, but My Fair Lady is a film that I would be happy to see a um, a Bartlett sure who was the, was the guy who directed the um, recent revival um, give it a shot and see because I feel like through staging through finding an actress that the creative team could um, uh, agree on for, you know, who had, I guess, the box office punch and the, you know, the voice that they were wanting um, to do it. Uh, yeah, I feel like My Fair Lady Missed the Mark and Dr. Strange Love um, is the better film. Yeah, I, I agree. Again, we could we could come back at this Again, we could come back at this and talk about Mary Poppins because maybe that's really what we should be talking about. But if we're just looking at these two films, then feel like to me it's like no, no contest. Um, yeah. So um, with that, why don't we wrap things up there? And Steve, why don't you tell us what are we watching next? So next month we are going to be coming back with the 83rd Academy Awards. And these were uh, the films honored of 2010. And we are going to be uh, taking a look at The King's Speech uh, versus Inception. Now, um, there were a number of other movies um, from that year, um, 127 Hours, Black Swan, The Fighter, The Kids Are All Right, The Social Network, which I feel like we'll get a couple of people who are like, why is The Social Network not 
mm-hmm. being the one that we're talking about. Uh, Toy Story 3, which I feel like actually there are probably a lot of people who think Toy Story 3 is something that we should be talking about. Uh, True Grit, no one, no one is going to I enjoyed it. I mean, not, not <laughs> I enjoyed it, but yeah. it's, it, for like Coen's, I feel like it's very much like a yeah. mid, mid filmography for them. I think and it'll be interesting to rewatch like Inception and everything like that because it's been a while. And I have this thing a lot of times with uh, um, with Christopher Nolan is I don't really like his movies the first time I watched them. And then like I watched it again and was like, wow, that was amazing or a masterpiece. And that's actually why we are choosing Inception um, over The Social Network or Toy Story 3 as we are currently still in the midst of this pandemic. Uh, Nolan, you know, made very famous that he was going to save all of cinema with his film Tenet. Um, and uh, really after Inception, he just even grew even more of an auteur with the rest of his um, uh, Dark Knight series and with Interstellar. Uh, so we feel like it's really the the one for us to kind of go back to. And I feel like I have not seen it since the theaters. And that's yeah. the same for you. Yeah. yeah. So uh, that's where we're going to be talking on next month. Um, and we are so excited uh, to kind of be back onto a regular schedule. Um, come follow us online. We are currently at Twitter at Great Redux Pod. That's G R E A T R E D U X P O D. Great Redux Pod. Um, come join in the conversation. Uh, I know I try to put up our letterboxed um, reviews of our the films that we're watching. Um, and if you just want to talk about movies in general, know that we are we are there to engage. Um, so please go ahead and come join us there. Uh, but for this month, uh, Dr. Strangelove won. Um, I am Stephen Farrell. Uh, so excited to be able to talk to you. Doran, why don't you say goodnight? Uh, I think you pretty much said it all, Stephen. So uh, take it easy and we'll see you next time. <laughs> see you next time, guys. All right. Bye. Bye.